Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I pray that you do. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. This morning we continue um, a series that we began last week in the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 1, if you will stand with me as we read God's Word, we're going to read verses 5 through 25 together. Luke 1, 5 through 25. These are the words of life, words that God gave through Luke, the physician. And if you let them, they will change your life. Luke 1, 5 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn away many, the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, these are your words. I pray that this story would not just be a story, a fairy tale, something nice to tell your kids about or something nice for us to learn in Sunday school. An angel appears and says a baby's going to be born. This is a sign that you fulfill your promises. This is you actively working in human history to do what you have promised to do. Father, may we take faith and have certainty in that faith that you are at work both to will and to accomplish. Father, help us to know you better and to live lives according to that knowledge. By these your words, thank you for them. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. 
You know, it's, it's interesting to, uh, look at, look at times when a plan kind of comes together and, 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 and you see it all happening. It's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, I think about maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're, uh, like me and, and you've watched some of the TV channels that show, that show shows that are no longer in, in syndicate. They're, they're no longer being produced. They're in syndication. Um, you know, the, the older shows, shows that you might remember from your childhood or, uh, if you really don't want to admit how old you are, um, from your adulthood that, we're on a long, long time ago. But anyway, uh, th- sometimes I would watch some of those types of shows. And one of those types of shows wasn't too, too long ago, but it was fairly long ago enough. And that was the A-Team. Do you remember the A-Team? Uh, who can forget Mr. T? I mean, Mr. T, he's, he's, I mean, he's just unforgettable. Um, there were a couple of characters. One of the characters was Murdoch. He was the brains behind the operation. And the A-team would go in and they would help someone. They were kind of a vigilante militia type of group. And they would go in and help someone who was being oppressed or done wrong. And, and, and they, for hire, they could, they could do that. And anyway, they would, they would come into a situation and it would be a bad situation, a tough situation. And they'd have to work out a plan on the spot to figure out how to make it right. Maybe someone was getting cheated and they were, they were trying to figure out how, how to get them to stop or whatever the case may be. But Murdoch, it would come to a point in the show where Murdoch, or things are starting to happen and everything's coming together and Murdoch would say, I love it when a plan comes together. It's just something satisfying about watching the plan all come together. Especially when the plan's been going on a long time. My, my dad, um, would do something every year. He had a scheme to get my mom a Christmas present. You know, you ask your wives, husbands, what, what do you want for Christmas? I don't need anything. Just get stuff for the kids. Right? How many of you do that? Yeah. My mom would do that. And so my dad knew we didn't have the cash flow at Christmas time to buy her something nice. So all year long, he would take his lunch money. Yeah, he got an allowance for lunch money because she did all the bills. He'd take that lunch money and he'd spend a little bit of it to eat some. He was a hard worker. And, and, and those of you who work hard know that uh, uh, in the middle of the shift, you don't want to eat much. Like you're just not hungry. You're working, you're going, you're doing, you're doing manual hard labor. You don't want to stop and eat a big meal because then you're going to be sluggish and tired and you're never, it, it's just going to ruin everything. My dad's that way. So, so he would eat a little bit of something, if anything, and he'd take the rest of the money and put it to the side and save it all year long so that he could buy my mom a Christmas present. It was a scheme, a plan that had been long in the works. And so it was always interesting on Christmas from the time that I knew what he was doing to watch that plan come together on Christmas Day and him to give mama a nice Christmas present because he had saved all year long for it. There's something about watching a plan come together, especially when it's been in the works for a long time. God's been doing something for a very long time. Throughout the Old Testament, he has made promises that he would send a Messiah. He would send someone to rescue Israel, to bring about God's redemption of his people, to establish his reign on the earth. For millennia by this point, God's promises seem to be delayed. Had he forgotten? Was he unable to deliver? What was the holdup? The question seemed to be answered by prophets at various points, but even now, 
By the time that we come to Luke's, the beginning of Luke's gospel, it has been 400 plus years since any word from heaven. It's been silent. And the silence has been deafening. The prayers, the many prayers throughout the ages of people of God wanting God to make things right, wanting Him to do His will, wanting Him to fulfill His promise, and it all seemed to go for naught. And it's in this milieu that Zechariah and Elizabeth find themselves. Luke 1.5 introduces us to this couple. In the days of Herod, this would have been about AD 30, or uh, 30 BC to about 4 AD would have been the reign of Herod. So we know it's in the, in the reign of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Here's this couple who were both Levites. In verse 6, they were both known for their righteousness. Verse 6 tells us, and they were both righteous before God. This wasn't a couple that looked good, but really wasn't. This wasn't a couple who was playing the game. They weren't going through the rituals. They had a genuine relationship with God. They genuinely loved God and genuinely walked in His ways, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, does this mean they're perfect? No, they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Well, uh, Mary's going to have a kid in a little while that's perfect. But other than that, nobody's perfect. But this was a couple that was upstanding, a couple who you could, who you knew, who had the reputation and more importantly, had God's approval that they were righteous before him. They were living life the way they were supposed to live. They were faithful people. But verse 7, they have no child. In that day, barrenness was a scourge. It was the result of sin. It was a punishment, most people thought. I mean, you had to be really bad for God to say you can't have kids. That was the line of thinking. Some of us may feel like we're barren. Maybe maybe you don't have kids, or maybe you have kids that don't follow God's ways. Maybe you feel like your prayers, as soon as you lift them up, they bounce off the ceiling right back down at you. You feel barren in your prayer life. Maybe, maybe you feel barren in your loneliness. You've got no one to talk to. No one, no family that, that is interested in being around you. Nobody, nobody to console with. Nobody to love on. You might feel barren. You ever felt that way? All of us have those times where we feel barren, where there's nothing there. Oh, we, we, we might try and we might want to do good for God. It, it, it's just, it's like nothing comes as a result. We're barren. It's all dried up. There was, there was a, a time where there was just dry dust on the ground. God took that dust and turned it into a human being. Barren dust yields life. There was a time when there's a valley of dry bones, so dry, so dry, no marrow in them, brittle, breaking apart, and the valley is covered with them, and God turns it into a mighty army. You see, this is a God who takes the barren and makes it bare life. And that's exactly what he's going to do. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Every one of us knows the feeling of feeling barren. But I want you to know that barrenness, sometimes barrenness isn't a punishment. Think of Sarah, 90 years old when she finally gives birth. How would you like to be 90 and pregnant? I'd get you a TLC special. We don't know how old Elizabeth was. She was old enough. I love how he says, I'm an old man, but my wife is 
well advanced in years. I, I love, anyway. How many nights must Elizabeth have cried to herself, soaking her pillow because of the anguish of not having a child? How many days had Zachariah endured the vitriol from other priests and scribes and rabbis who had numerous children themselves? How many prayers had the couple offered to God, begging him to open her womb? But now it's too late. They were too old. Must have been tough. But I imagine by this point, they were probably given up. It was a dream that wasn't meant to be. They didn't know the story. They hadn't read Luke 1. All they knew was that they were suffering for no apparent reason. Been there? Yeah. If you haven't, just hang on. You'll go through it. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priests before God, when his division was on duty, Zechariah was a priest. Now, the way the priests worked those days, there were 24 divisions uh, of Levites. He's in the division that was headed um, originally by Abijah. So he's he's in the Abijah division. And it's kind of like the National Guard. You, you, you go on for a couple of weeks a year. You work in the temple when your division's up. And then when there's a big feast, like the Passover or something like that, that that's huge, the Pentecost and, and the Feast of Tabernacles, everybody, all 24 divisions would be in Jerusalem to work that. I mean, now that was the big deal. You got people coming from all over the place. You got more sacrifices than, than you can handle. You need all hands on deck, right? So I work at Chick-fil-A. Guess, guess what time the, the, is the busiest? Lunchtime. Guess what day? Every day. <laughs> sure seems that way. You should see it from the kitchen, man. I'm telling you. Saturday. Okay. Right? Everybody's off work. They're all, everybody wants chicken at the same time Saturday. So I'm just going to warn you. If you want chicken on Saturday, um, 11 to 2 is just going to be slammed, okay? I'm just going to tell you, just just put your patient hat on and, and come ready to wait. We'll get you out pretty quick, but we're still. Um, guess when the most people are working at Chick-fil-A in Prattville? Saturday at lunch. You need them, right? You need like 50 people working at that time because there's just too many folks coming in. You need all the help you can get. That's exactly what happens with the temple. Everybody comes in and works those big feasts. But during the course of the year, uh, your division would come up and you'd serve two different weeks of the year. Okay, so about every six months you'd come there and there would be thousands of priests working. This wasn't, we have this idea, this picture of like three priests walking around the temple. Like there's one guy maybe over here. There's one guy maybe over there. There's there's maybe maybe another guy that that's tending to this over here. And that's about it. No, it would have been packed full of priests because it would have been packed full of people. This was the place to be in Jerusalem. This was the place where you come to God. This is the place where all the sacrifices would be offered. This is the place where everything would happen in relationship to worshiping God. And so there would be hundreds or thousands of priests at one time. And it would have been... Well, it would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to offer incense before God as a priest. So they're, they're working, the priests are, are working, they're all over the place. There's all kinds of people coming and going. It's busy day, normal day in the temple. And verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, 
He's working when his division is there according to how they scheduled things out. And he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is a chance that he would never have gotten probably in his life and would never get again. They draw straws and he gets the straw to offer incense. I mean, you talk about hitting a bullseye on a dartboard while you're blindfolded. That's the kind of chance we're talking. And the whole multitude of people, verse 10, were outside at the hour of incense. Imagine the anxiety of going before God. You're, it's all on your shoulders. No pressure. But Israel's right standing with God all depended on you as the priest. Yeah, no pressure, right? You got this whole people that you have to be praying for. Praying that God would forgive them of their sins. Praying that God would would cover over their sins and not hold them accountable. Praying that God would do the work. Maybe he was praying for God to send his Messiah. For God to do the work that he had promised to do. To fulfill his promise. Maybe he was praying to God. There's all kinds of things that he must have been praying. I wonder if maybe... I wonder what he prayed. Can you imagine the anxiety? The heart racing? I mean, this is the God that kills people who go into the Holy of Holies without doing the proper purification first. You don't think that just because he's just outside that curtain that he feels any less nervous, do you? I'm pretty sure if that had been me, my heart would have been beating out of my chest just walking into the temple. He's the only one in there. There's nobody else in there. Oh, oh, they're packed on the outside. There's tons of stuff going on. But he's the only one inside that temple knowing that he is just a few feet away from the Ark of the Covenant, from the seat of God's presence. And he's asking God to be with his people. But no pressure. I'd have been a nervous wreck. There's some folks praying outside. Zechariah enters the temple. And then verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Just as he's praying and burning incense, he looks and there's the angel of God. You thought he was anxious before? Look, look, at, look at verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled and there when he saw him and fear fell upon him. When the messenger of God suddenly appears, it's a frightening event. The word for troubled here is the same one used in John 11.33. When Jesus sees Mary weeping for her brother Lazarus who's just died and, and he is greatly troubled in his spirit it's it's the same word of of people realizing that they are under the judgment of god and being troubled it's it's being terrified being greatly disturbed it's being shaken to the core overwhelmed by the gravity of the situation zachariah is shaken and overcome with fear that's the point where he stops talking first god's got his attention But the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. (laughs) That's easy for you to say. For your prayer has been heard. How could he not be afraid? Because God had heard his prayers. Your prayer has been heard. Maybe, maybe he was, maybe while he was praying and offering incense, he was praying along with the psalmist in Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Perhaps he was praying from Psalm 119. My soul longs for your salvation, for the glory of your name. I'm sorry. My soul, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? And how would God answer those prayers? Wait, God, 
You heard my prayer? You heard what I was praying? You know what I was praying? Now, this hearing isn't just, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's, I'm going to do it. I listen to you, and I agree with you. That's why he didn't have to be afraid. Oh, yeah, it was a frightening experience. But this angel comes bringing good news. This angelic announcement was an announcement of joy. How would God answer his prayers? By announcing the birth of the Messiah's forerunner. God had seemed to be absent for centuries, but now he's breaking the silence by breaking forth through two miraculous births. The first, son to a couple that was too old to have a baby. And not just any son. Look, look at what the angel says about this son in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. My, what a son this couple's going to have. In fact, every single promise that Gabriel announces Luke makes a point to show that it's fulfilled. For example, them having joy and gladness and others rejoicing. That's in Luke 158. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. We see what God has done and it brings us to rejoice. That's not an uncommon pattern in Luke. Especially in these first couple chapters. God makes a promise. God delivers on the promise. And their response to God's promise is praise. Look for that pattern because it's there. In fact, read through the first couple chapters of Luke when you get home today. And look for that pattern. Because that's the whole basis of what Luke is trying to show you. God has made a promise. God is fulfilling His promise. And our result, our our response to God's fulfillment is praise. The way we should respond when God does what He says He's going to do is to bring Him praise because that's why He's doing it in the first place. Because He deserves all the praise. And He's just proving it. That's all His works are. They're proof of His worthiness of praise. So when I say, or when Jim says, let's praise the Lord, we're not making a suggestion. It's actually a requirement because He deserves it. Oh, what about... What, what about the promise that their son would be great? Well, that's in, that's in Luke uh, 7, 28. Jesus is talking. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, he's making the point that when you serve in the kingdom of heaven, you become even greater than that. That's a pretty high compliment for Jesus to say, you are the greatest man born of a woman. That's a pretty high compliment, don't you think? Oh, this son would be great. What What about... What about the filling of the Holy Spirit? He said he would be filled from the Holy Spirit from the womb. Well, we all know a baby's inside a mama before it's born, right? So God doesn't just want to fill the baby and not the mama. He fills the mama too. Look in uh, Luke one forty one, And Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby left in her womb. Elizabeth uh, uh, was about to have the baby. Mary comes to visit her. When when she hears Mary's greeting, the John jumps in the womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, and if you're wondering about dad, he was filled with the Holy Spirit after the birth. Soon as the birth happens, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins to prophesy. What about, um, what about that he would prepare the way for the Lord? Luke 7, 27. 
This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus says, you know that guy, John? He's the one that was coming before me. He's the one the scripture's talking about. The, the, the scripture referring back to Isaiah 49, it also refers to Malachi 4 where Malachi God through the prophet says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now where have I heard that before? That's exactly what the angel said he was going to do. Coming in the spirit of Elijah. Set the hearts of the fathers to the children. It's amazing. He says, I've heard your prayer and I'm going to answer it. Now, put yourself in Zechariah's shoes for a minute. You've just seen the angel, and he's proclaimed that your very old self and your almost his old wife, because you don't want to admit she's old, because you're old enough to know better, who who has been barren for many years will have a son. What a son he'll be. What do you do? Do you praise? Do you give thanks? Do you wonder? Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, how shall I know this? I, I, I feel a kindred spirit with Zechariah. How, how am I, how am I going to know this? Because I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Let me put it in Southern terms. I'm old and my wife ain't no spring chicken either. Zechariah had a vision problem. His old age was an obstacle that seemed insurmountable to him. His problems appeared larger than his God. He also had a hearing problem. His ears wouldn't hear God's message because his brain couldn't comprehend it. He had a touching problem. The promise was intangible to such an old man who had long given up on feeling the touch of his child in his arms. So now he would have a speaking problem too. Luke 1.19 And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Do you know who you're talking to? I stand in the presence of God. Can I be honest with you? I can't stand in his presence. I'm not worthy of that. Neither are you. See, because we're all sinners. Gabriel doesn't have that problem. He stands in God's presence, ready to serve, ready to do what God says on a moment's notice. And that's what he's doing here. That's why he's here, to obey the command of God. And behold, verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah's first response to God's word was disbelief. And so that would be his only response until he saw it come to pass. He wouldn't get a second chance to speak until after the baby was born. I find it interesting that the first thing he says is praise when he does open his mouth. I wonder how long it took Zechariah to to regret his doubt. Do you, you ever wonder? I wonder how happy Elizabeth was when she found out. <laughs> For some of us special people... People, this would have been torture, and that's me. I'm special people. Now picture him walking out of the temple, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. People have no clue what's happened. He's in there a really long time, so they're starting to worry. Then when he does come out, he's white as a sheet and can't even get a single word out. Something must have happened. They don't know what. Sometimes that's how God works. They didn't know the explanation. They didn't see Gabriel. They didn't hear the message. Only he did. Eventually, the weekend in Zechariah returned home. They lived just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem in the hill country, around uh, Hebron, 
if you're looking at the book of maps in the back of your Bible, you can look up Hebron, just south of Jerusalem. That's the area that they lived in. And then verses 24 and 25, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You know, I can't understand why some of us go through suffering. I can't look at your life. Y'all don't have neon signs over your head that I can see, okay, that, that say that you're suffering for this reason. I wish, sometimes I wish that would happen. Like I wish I had like a, 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 a pastor vision where I could understand why you're going through things because I, I, I really, I would help you. I would, I would tell you about them. I would say, hey, the sign above your head says that you're a sinner and need to repent. Or the sign above your head says that God is doing something amazing and you just wait two more weeks and you'll figure it out. I wish that I could, I could discern that, but I can't. I wish that I had the words could, to, to tell you exactly why things are going the way that they are. Maybe why you couldn't have a child, or maybe why your child won't follow God yet, or maybe why certain other things are happening, why those prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down, or whatever the barrenness might be for you. I wish I could tell you, this is what God's plan is. Just stick it out. Have faith, because it's going to come to pass. But then again, it really wouldn't be faith if you know, would it? See, putting faith requires us to trust God enough that no, it doesn't matter what it is. Some of us feel barren because we are. But it may not be because we've messed up. It may not be because we've sinned. Some of us feel barren, maybe because it ain't time yet. God's working in some of your lives in different ways that none of us know yet. Don't ever forget that. Trust Him. Put faith in God to do what He will Maybe the suffering is for his glory. Maybe the suffering is part of his plan. Maybe the suffering is how he is being perfected in you. You know, he told Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Maybe God needs you to be weak so that he can be strong. Maybe, just maybe, God is working a much bigger plan than you could ever realize. And he's looking at it like Murdoch. I love it when a plan comes together. God perfected his plan Jesus Christ on the cross, but he's still working out the ramifications of it. That event happened long ago, and, and you being saved from your sins was already won by Jesus on the cross, but that, that event doesn't just stop at the cross, and it doesn't just stop when you pray that prayer, you ask God to come into your heart, you give him your life. That's not where it stops. It has ramifications that go throughout your life and on into eternity future. He's doing something, and if you're suffering, if you're, if you're going through the pain or the trial or the anguish, I want you to know He is working in you. You may need somebody to pray with you. I'm going to be up here at the front. If you need someone to talk to, to pray with, I'll be here. Maybe you just, maybe you just want to get alone with God. We, the altar's open. When we sing this verse of invitation, I'm going to ask you to trust God enough, even when you don't understand why. Because he's still working. His plans, his promises will be fulfilled. Would you trust him this morning?